So we're coming back to our friend Paul this week. He's getting ready to head out on his first missionary journey, as it's called. And I'm just going to remind you, remember, we have originally Saul, who is the the persecutor of the early church, and on his way to Damascus to continue that persecution, he encounters the risen Christ and has this tremendous uh, kind of overwhelming experience of Christ's presence. Uh, A conversion takes place. He goes on into Damascus where he meets uh, Ananias, who lays hands on him, restores his vision. Uh, He's filled with the Spirit. He begins to speak. Uh, the folks in Damascus, uh, some of the folks that have known him for a while are not real happy about all this and not real happy about him being there. Uh, he kind of makes a last-minute escape. Uh, he goes and spends some time in Arabia uh, to uh, prepare himself and, and in that kind of 40-day kind of thing that we see happen over and over again with the Scripture where folks won't go into the wilderness to prepare their spirit for what God calls them to. Comes back through Jerusalem, meets with uh, the early church in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, and then goes back to Tarsus, back to his hometown. And he, he's been there about 10 years when the church in Jerusalem decides that they need to shore up the church in Antioch and, and send somebody up there to work with that. And so they, they get Barnabas and they say, we would like for you to go. And he says, I'll go on one condition that I get to go get Saul and take him with me. So he goes to Tarsus, finds Saul, takes him with him, and they go to Antioch and are in ministry there. And, and that's where the story picks up again this week. In the church at Antioch were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, a Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the ruler. And I don't know if you've ever picked up on that before, uh, but actually a, a member of Herod's court is in this group. Um, so, uh, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And thus begins the first journey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rain that comes and refreshes the ground. And we ask that your Spirit would come and refresh us. Uh, May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> so I, I want to point something out to you in this. There's a, a, this phrase that comes up. It's praying and fasting, and sometimes it's fasting and praying. You're going to hear this over and over again. It, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but what you'll see is this pattern in there where they will gather together, uh, they'll worship and fast, or they'll pray and fast, or worship and pray and fast, and, and the Holy Spirit will show up and, and give them direction, and the Holy Spirit will show up to give them power to do what they're called to do. And so uh, some people have said that this really should have been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's really the Holy Spirit that's driving it all. And those of you that are doing the uh, seedbed text with uh, J.D., you know, he's been working on the Acts of the Apostles and emphasizing that. And the prayer every day has been, come Holy Spirit, because that's what powers this whole story through the Acts of the Apostles. You'll see this happen over and over again. They'll come together, and you heard they're in Antioch. They come together, they worship, and they fast. And God says, I want you to send Barnabas and Saul. So then they, they fast and they pray, And then they lay hands on them to receive the Spirit, and they send them out. And that pattern repeats all through the whole book of the Acts of the Apostles. And it just kind of jumped out at me because I'm thinking, you know, praying and fasting, how often do we do that? I mean, you know, praying sometimes in the church today seems like it's kind of 
formulaic and perfunctory rather than this kind of intense thing. Uh, there's a, a true story that's kind of become a joke with the staff about this committee group is meeting and they're, they're trying to make a decision and they talk about it and they weigh all the options and everything and they just can't, can't get there to make a decision. So finally somebody says, well, maybe we should pray about that. And someone else in the committee goes, oh, has it come to that? So, you know, we, we do that, like, oh, has it come to that? But, you know, why, it's like prayer becomes the last kind of thing that we go to. You know, it, it, it's our last resort instead of what we begin with. But in, in the early church, it's always where they start. It's always where they begin. And they have prayer and, and they fast. They fast. I love it. I mean, I, I go and I talk to people about fasting and they they act like I'm speaking a foreign language. What? What are you talking about? We never heard of such a thing. I mean, the early church at fast, they do it all the time. You see this over and over and over. They come together and do it. Now, now I realize for Methodists, this is a stretch. But, but, but in the early church, they do this on a regular basis. I'm thinking, why is that so hard for us to do that? There's a group of us who fast either on Wednesdays or Thursdays on a pretty regular basis. Uh, around the conference and around the country and, and do that on, on a very uh, consistent kind of basis. And, and we go and we talk to people about it and they, they look at you like you're some kind of nut. I'm going, oh my gosh, if you can't miss one meal for Jesus, I mean, really? How much are you willing to do? I mean, there's, there's something about when we deny ourselves our physicality uh, that we begin to understand that we really are sustained by the Spirit of God not by what we shovel into our mouths. And the early church understood that powerfully. They fasted and they prayed, and, and then they heard, their ears were open to hear what the Spirit was saying to them. Instead of getting together and making all their decisions and making their plans and all that, and then saying, okay, God, here's what we're doing. We want you to come be part of it. They fast and they pray, and they wait to hear from God. And then they say, okay, God, how can we be part of what you're doing? And how much different would the church look if we took that seriously and we leaned into that? And instead of inviting God to be part of what we want to do, we decided to be part of what God wants to do. So they fast and they pray and they set off. There's a timeline in uh, Adam's book that kind of picks up there around you know 47 or so when Barnabas goes up to Antioch and, and uh, Paul's up at Tarsus. Barnabas go, goes up and gets him, brings him down to Antioch. They begin ministry there. And as they're in ministry there, uh, a, a prophet comes to them and tells them there's going to be a time of uh, famine in Judah. Uh, and the church in Jerusalem is going to be hurting. And so Paul and Barnabas take up an offering in the church of Antioch. And they take that down to Jerusalem. Uh, and deliver that to the church in Jerusalem. So early, early, early in the life of the church, we already see brothers and sisters sacrificing to care for one another. You know, so they're not just saying, oh, we'll think about you. They're not just saying, oh, we'll pray for you. They're, they're sacrificing so that they can send offering to the church in Jerusalem to sustain them. And we'll see that pattern over throughout the Acts of the Apostles. You hear it in Paul's letters where he called on the churches, not, not just to think about each other, not just to pray for each other, but to sacrificially give to help each other. And it becomes very much a part of the DNA of the early church. That's part of who we're called to be also. 
and to be willing to, to lay aside and to sacrificially offer for each other. After that, they come back to Antioch. Uh, we had this time where they pray, fast, and they're sent off on their first journey. And at the end of that journey, somewhere around there toward the end of that, is uh, one of the possible times when Paul has written uh, the letter to the Galatians. Uh, there's some discussion around that. One of the things on this map I want you to notice, if you look over toward the right of the side of the map, you'll see it says Syrian Antioch. And if you'll look up into the area of Asian Minor, you'll see Pisidian Antioch. There's two Antiochs that are talked about in the Acts of the Apostles. And you kind of have to pay attention because it doesn't always tell you which one it is so that you're, you know which one is being discussed. Uh, the home church is in Syrian Antioch. And so from there they come down to Seleucia, they board a ship, they go to Cyprus, which is uh, Barnabas's uh, home stomping grounds, uh, and, and they start uh, the work there, and then they come up to Perga. The first time they're in Perga, Paul doesn't do much. Um, it's hot, it's humid, uh, he doesn't like the climate, and it sounds like he might have gotten sick with something, so they don't spend a lot of time there. But from there they go up to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, then back through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and down to Atelia before they sail back to Antioch of Syria. And, and that's probably uh, the, the shortest journey of Paul's missionary journeys. But when he goes into Asia Minor and he's traveling through that, that's, that's strenuous, uh, strenuous work to make that journey. We, I don't know about you, but I, I, I tend to think of Asia Minor as being you know, kind of desert kind of, but it, it really isn't. In this area, you're in the Taurus Mountains. Uh, it's very mountainous. It's very green. looks a lot like the highlands of Colorado. And so this would have been physically a very strenuous journey to make because they're walking over this everywhere they go. And the, it might have taken six to nine months for them to complete this journey as they traveled. So uh, it, it's a long way, and it's, it's a very uh, physically strenuous way. The first city he comes to that he actually does uh, much ministry when he gets into the, onto Asia Minor is Pisidian Antioch. And we hear a little bit about his method that he uses uh, in Acts. They went from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, which for them would have been what we think of as Saturday, uh, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. So he goes to the community of, of the Hebrews, of the Jewish people, uh, that he would have had connection with. And after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the officials of the synagogue sent them a message saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, give it. Now, that may sound a little unusual to you because that's kind of like if we got here on Sunday morning and I just called one of you out and said, well, do you have a word from the Lord for us this morning? And you'd probably kind of go, uh, no, I didn't know I was supposed to do anything. I didn't prepare anything. I, now, what you need to know is when you travel in other parts of the world, you need to be prepared. Because when you go to Cuba or if you go to Central America or you go to Africa and you go in and they find out you're from America, They'll get up there in the middle of the service and say, oh, we have some brothers and sisters here from America. Would one of you like to come and share a word from the Lord with us? And then they'll wait for you to do it. There's no, uh, well, we didn't get anything ready or not. No, 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 no. no. We're going to all sit here until one of you gets up and does something. Uh, John Wesley once told his, uh, his early leaders in the church, he said, you know, at all times you should be ready to, to preach, uh, to pray, to move, and to die. Most of us avoid the last option as much as possible, but you know, he, he, this was something we were supposed to be ready to do, and when you travel now, in a lot of the world, that's the expectation. We've kind of gotten away from that here in the States, but in a lot of the rest of the world, when you go to worship with your brothers and sisters, they'll ask you, can you come share a word from the Lord with us? So early on, the church sets that pattern. Brothers, 
Do you have a word for us? Come up here and give it to us. And Paul launches into this sermon where he tells the story about Christ. And toward the end of that sermon, this is this uh, chapter 13 is one of the longer pieces of speaking we have from Paul. Toward the end of that sermon, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, my brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, in his book, Adam kind of takes this and he, he, he kind of implies that what Paul is saying is the, the law of Moses doesn't uh, really have that much application anymore. If you read Paul's letters, uh, you're probably going to want to disagree with that. That's really not what Paul is doing here. But Paul is trying to help people understand it properly. Uh, the, the law in, in the Hebrew faith, the law is given as a guide. Uh, this is the way, this is the path to go on. This is the way you, you move toward God. This is the path through this life that brings blessing to you and life to you. And, and when you stray off of this path, you, you go into dangerous places. When some of our German ancestors uh, came to Texas and settled here, uh, they landed at Indianola down on the coast, uh, just down the, the road from where my son serves in Port Lavaca. And they were promised, boy, this is the land of milk and honey. You know, you're going to come here, and it's wonderful, and you're going to love it and all this. And, and so they came. If you read their journals, the early German settlers, what they'll tell you is, we were promised that we were coming to heaven. We've landed in hell. <laughs> I mean, they're really blunt about it. It's hot. It's humid. The bugs are eating us alive. You know, and then about the time that we think we're going to die, the cold front comes through, and now we're freezing to death. And every time we go out in the countryside, everything is either scratching us or biting us. It's trying to hurt us or it's trying to kill us. It was rough. And they learned when they traveled to stay on the right paths when they traveled through the countryside if they wanted to be safe. And eventually they got really smart and they moved to the hill country. But, but, but they learn. They learn to, to follow these paths. And, and, and the law is given like that. I mean, Paul said, you know, the, the law is it's this path that you travel on that, that leads you toward God and it leads you in a place that's safe and where life is good. So then he talks about sin and grace. Now, these are the anglicized or English spellings of the words, but sin is, is hamartia. Um, it's to miss the mark, it's to get off course, it's to have bad aim in archery. And so Paul says, you know, we have this, it's born into us, it's like a congenital illness we carry, this sin, that when we're traveling down this path, we lose our way and we wander off. And when we wander off, we go to places that are dangerous. Because when you get off the path of the law, you walk into places where there's death and destruction. I want you to hear this. It's not the same thing as saying sin causes death and destruction, but sin causes us to wander into places where that will affect us. But he says the, the good news is this word of grace. In Greek, the word's charis. It means a gift. It's a gift. It's given to you. And grace is a gift. The law itself is a gift to start with, but when you wander off, the gift that comes in Christ is that you're forgiven and you're restored back to the path where life is. You see, what they'd forgotten, the people had forgotten at that time, was that the law, the law did not bring you salvation. The law did not bring you forgiveness. That came from God. The law was a tool to help you be on the right path in life, 
But, but the law itself could not bring you salvation and could not bring you life. That came through God, and it came through God specifically in the life of Jesus Christ. And so that's the gift. That, that word charis is uh, where we get uh, charismatic or charisma from. Uh, charismatic means to be filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Charisma is to have a gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the singular is charism. Uh, and so uh, th- this word, you know, it's this gift of God's love to us. It's a gift. You don't earn salvation through the law, and the law cannot give that to you. Only God can give it. The law was given to us as a tool. In our culture, when we, uh, when we use this kind of language now, uh, a lot of times when people talk about sin, what they do is they, they hear that as, oh, you're saying I'm a bad person. You're saying, oh, well, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, that kind of thing. And what Paul wants to be clear about is, you know, when you sin, the gift of grace restores you to a right relationship with God. Put your feet back on the path. And so understanding that you've sinned, instead of being a word of condemnation, actually is a word of hope because it means now you know where you've gotten off and you can be restored. Remember in John 3, 17, comes right after that John 3, 16 that everybody knows. John 3, 17, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God's mission is to save the world, not to condemn it. When we refuse to acknowledge the sin that's within us, it's kind of like the alcoholic that says, I don't have a problem with drinking. And so they're stuck in that pattern of behavior until they are willing to recognize it. What Paul wants you to understand is when the law comes, the law is there to help you understand the path to be on and to help you understand when you've strayed off so that the gift of grace can restore you and bring you back onto this path of life, bring you back on this path of right relationship with God. But it isn't the law that gives you forgiveness and it isn't the law that gives you salvation. Only God does that as a charis, as a gift that comes to you in grace. He's reframing that for the people, and, and as they listen to him, uh, he writes to the, the church in Rome to, to really kind of flesh that out and, and say, okay, you got the theology down. Now let me tell you what it feels like to live into this. Uh, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good because it helps me understand this. But in fact, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. And when you read in English in Paul's language, when he talks about body, that's a neutral term. Flesh is the, the negativity of that. It's the, the, the over-functioning um, of, of certain kinds of desires and passions in our body. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. And some of you know exactly what he's talking about. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. Those moments when when you think you're going to, you want to do the right thing and somehow or another for some reason you do something else and you're thinking, how in the world did that happen? For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then you hear the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And he's, he's trying to put flesh and bones on that theology to understand what it feels like to live in that place and understand that we need that grace. We need that grace to give us life, to give us hope. So he begins to preach this message. Um, and as he comes to the synagogue and he offers this, uh, there's people of the Jewish faith that are there uh, and, and are worshiping with him. There's other Gentile believers that are there listening to him. And, you know, it's a pretty radical message he's bringing, and people are getting on board with it, and people are liking it. But anytime you uh, do something that's like that that's very different and yet is received so well, there's some folks who resent that. And so some of them uh, kind of rise up against him, and they begin to say bad things about him in Antioch. And, and, and then he goes on from there to the next city of Iconium. And the same thing occurred in Iconium where people spoke against him. Where Paul and Barnabas went in the Jewish synagogue, spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. But unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who testified to the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done through them. So they come in and they stir up people to say bad things about him. And what does Paul do? Does he leave? No. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Most of the time when people start to talk bad about us, we leave, don't we? We take off, we head for the hills. But Paul stays. When the persecution comes, when the opposition comes, he stays, he turns his face into it, speaks boldly for the Lord. And that becomes a pattern also. So he goes on now from Iconium, he goes on to Lystra. When he comes to Lystra, he, does, uh, he and Barnabas are there. Uh, God does a healing through them. And, uh, and the people there are so amazed with that that they start to want to come and bring offerings and sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, thinking that they've done this instead of God. And Paul says, friends, why are you doing this? We're mortals just like you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things, offerings and idols, to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways, yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But you know, mobs are fickle, and crowds are fickle, and they can turn on you in a moment, can't they? They can turn on you so quickly. But Jews came there from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowds. Then they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the city. The next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So, so this crowd is, is just so fickle and turned so easily. And, and they drag Paul out and they stone him until they think they've killed him. They must have knocked him out. They drag him out of the city and, and leave him out there. Uh, the followers that are with them, the disciples come and they're, they're gathered around him and, and he comes to and he sits up and what does he do? He goes back into the city. I don't know about you, but if I was somewhere preaching and they had stoned me and dragged me out of the city gates and dumped me assuming I was dead, I'm not sure I would get up and go back in there. I mean, does, it occur to, I mean, does that make, I mean, doesn't seem like a good choice, does it? But that's exactly what Paul does. He gets up, he goes back in. And then the next day, we don't know how badly injured he was, but obviously he was. The next day he gets up and they begin to walk across the mountains to Derby, to the next town. 
And if you ever had any doubts about how tough Paul was, that should lay them to rest. If you ever had any doubts about how convicted he was, that should lay it to rest. I mean, he gets into this place where opposition comes and he goes right into it. And we won't talk to our neighbors because we're afraid we'll offend them. Really? And we don't want to share our faith with someone because we're afraid we might get rejected. Really? Last time I checked, I don't remember anybody around here getting stoned because they share their faith. No wonder we're in such trouble. Here's Paul boldly proclaiming the truth of sin and grace right into the face of opposition. And we put our tail between our legs and run. No wonder our witness suffers. So here's Paul setting this pattern of boldness and of strength. And as if that's not enough, as they're leaving, <clears throat> after they proclaimed the good news to that city and made many disciples, they returned. <laughs> they went back to Lystra. They went to Iconium. They went back to Antioch. All those cities that he'd faced opposition in, they went back to those places. They strengthened the souls of the disciples there. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, it's through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. And after they had appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting... They entrusted them to the Lord in whom they'd come to believe. I mean, he goes back to these places to build them up and to strengthen them and be sure they're doing okay. We're talking about boldness and courage and strength. He goes back to those same places and does that. But then he also, he, he raises up leaders in each one of those places because he knows that these early fledgling congregations of Christians will not survive unless they have someone leading them. And you notice how they do it, with fasting and prayer. When he uh, later on is talking to uh, one of his uh, younger friends, <clears throat> Titus, and he's trying to instruct them about, you know, these are the kind of leaders you need to raise up in Crete, where, where Titus was, uh, he gave these instructions. Uh, I left you behind in Crete for this reason, so that you should put in order what remained to be done and should appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Here's the description. Someone who is blameless. We're already in trouble. Right? Married only once, whose children are believers, not accused of debauchery and not rebellious. For a bishop, uh, uh, Episcopus, uh, as God's steward, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or addicted to wine or violent or greedy for gain. But he must be hospitable a lover of goodness, prudent, upright, devout, and self-controlled. He must have a firm grasp of the word that is trustworthy in accordance with the teaching so that he may be able both to preach with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. This is, this is the leader. You know, if, if I had read that and understood it when I was getting ready to start this ministry stuff, I might have decided to do something else. I might have. It's intimidating, isn't it? It's a high bar. And frankly, you know, it, it's a high enough bar that most of us are not going to reach it at some point in time. 
But I want you to remember that, that charis, gift of grace. You know, when, when, when you don't hit the bar, it's not time for judgment. When you don't hit the bar, it's, it's, it's time to recognize that. It's time to go back to God and say, I didn't make it, and to be forgiven, and then let God strengthen you. So that instead of it becoming a place for judgment, it becomes a place where you're constantly built up to be more than who you have been. And Paul says, this is what your leader should look like. He's not talking about clergy here, incidentally, because remember at this point in time in the church, there's no such thing as clergy and laity. He's talking about the leaders of the church. This is who you should be. And this is who you should expect your leaders to be. To be raising this bar up so that we're constantly growing into more than we have been. And that's the call he places upon us. Having given all this instruction, he's gone back and visited these towns and raised up leaders. He gets back on the boat, goes back to uh, Syrian Antioch. Uh, they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia when they'd spoken the word in Perga. Apparently the second time he spent a little more time there. They went down to Italia, a coastal uh, port city, and from there they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had completed. When they arrived, they called the church together and related all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles, and they stayed there with the disciples for some time. When it, when it was all over, he went back to his home church and he reported everything that God had done, and they had a great celebration of that. You know, some of you were here uh, the first year that we went to Kenya from here. Uh, when we went to Matete to, to visit the area we've been working in, uh, this church has been working in for a number of years now. And, and, and you'll remember that I, I came back and, and preached a 45-minute sermon or 55. Anyway, it was a long sermon with like 70 pictures and all this kind of stuff because I was so excited about what God was doing there. And I wanted to bring that back and celebrate with you what I saw. And sometimes we forget that that's part of this too. Is when God does amazing things, we need to, to share that and we need to celebrate that and lift it up and to praise God for what God is doing in those places. That's part of what we're called to do also. I mean, we see this pattern all through the Acts of the Apostles. You know, you, you fast and you pray to understand what God is calling you to do and to be empowered to do that. You fast and you pray, you listen. And say, okay, God, how can I be part of what you're doing? And then you go in boldness and you confidence to proclaim the truth of, of sin and of grace. You face opposition with confidence and conviction and courage and know that it's going to be there. But you don't run away from it, but you move into it. You raise up leaders who will sustain the faithful and your brothers and sisters. And when you come home, you celebrate everything that God has done. And we'll see that pattern repeat over and over throughout the Acts of the Apostles. So this morning, I'm just going to leave you with a few questions. And the first one is this. Before launching any effort for God, do you pray and fast? Do you pray and fast? Really? Really? I know you Methodists. Really? Can you boldly proclaim the truth of sin and God's grace? Can you articulate that and speak that and share that in a way that gives hope and not judgment? Are you willing to face opposition and persevere in the face of it? Not just shy away from it, but lean into it. 
And are you willing to accept the challenges of leadership? And do you expect that of your other church leaders? Paul sets a high bar for us. But this is the DNA of the church being shaped. This is God creating the early church and the power and the vitality of it. And it's what God calls us to. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we admit to you that oftentimes we fall far short of the mark that Paul has set for us. Uh, we give you thanks for him, for his strength, for his toughness, for his conviction, for his willingness to persevere in the face of opposition, for the fact that he walked into those places in absolute confidence uh, of your presence with him and the power that you were going to give him uh, and through him to be in these places. So, Father, we ask that you, uh, you come and, and let a little bit of Paul's spirit rest on us. Uh, give us strength, give us conviction, give us courage that, that we might live into a little bit of, of that pattern that Paul set for us that we might be willing to, to fast and to pray, to listen that we might be willing to speak boldly even in the face of the opposition and having done that, that we might be prepared to celebrate all that you were doing so, Father, pour out some of Paul's spirit upon us. But more importantly, Father, pour out your spirit upon us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.